knows your organization better than you. You are the nonprofit expert. In the Nonprofit Experts podcast, you'll join me, Mary Gladstone Highland, as I engage in conversations with leaders across the sector who are just like you, tackling challenging problems and finding creative solutions. Listen in to hear strategies you can implement in your organization today. everybody and welcome to the Nonprofit Experts Podcast. My name is Mary Gladstone Highland and as always I am so thrilled that you are listening today. Thank you to our supporters who have listened to some of these first episodes, who have liked the podcast, who have shared the podcast um, and reviewed on whatever source that you're listening. It's really meant a lot. And also an unexpected occurrence that happened since launching this podcast is I'm starting to receive text messages from friends who are saying that they're listening and colleagues as well and sharing their support via text, which is just really kind. I really appreciate it. Uh, So thank you for everybody who is listening. And if you enjoy this podcast, share it with a friend because we would like to be able to reach even more. Like me, in your organization, you probably handle big problems, right? The nonprofit sector handles giant problems. We handle things like inequalities, injustices, right? Health concerns, all sorts of really big stuff. Much of my career has been focused on poverty alleviation. And when we think about solving poverty, there's tons of thoughts. It's a very complicated, challenging issue to address. If I were to ask you, how do you think we should solve poverty? You might suggest things like, you know, we need more safety net programs like food pantries and case management, uh, emergency relief. Maybe you might say to me, we need more budgeting classes and financial uh, information for folks so that they can get a leg up. Or maybe you'd say to me, you know, we need to stop policies that perpetuate income inequality, right? There's a lot that could go into this very complex challenge. And what I have learned uh, throughout my work with individuals who are living in poverty is that it is incredibly hard to alleviate poverty in your community if you have never experienced poverty before yourself. And if you've listened to me in other places, you've probably heard me give the example of the purple shoes. And it's uh, the way that I describe why it is so hard to alleviate poverty if you've never experienced it. Um, But you could probably apply it to a lot of different uh, examples, not, not just poverty. But you can imagine if you had uh, a lot of resources to alleviate poverty in your community and you'd never experienced poverty before, you could, you know, think if everybody in poverty just had purple shoes, then they could get out of poverty. And it's a crazy example and it's intended to be because the point is to show you that it's very hard to know what people need who are living in poverty. Right? So you may think something like, if they just needed XYZ, in this case, it's purple shoes. And you spend lots of time and resource and energy to buy these purple shoes for every person in your community who is living in poverty. You say, here is your brand new shiny pair of purple shoes. And then, if we were to highlight those individuals who are receiving that gift, 
you might ask them, hey, how are your purple shoes doing? And they might say something like, I have absolutely no need (laughs) for purple shoes. Not a single need, not one at all. And that's why it's incredibly hard, right? This is a complex issue. And if we don't ask the people who are gonna be impacted by the work that we do, uh, if our programs are meaningful, then it makes those programs even harder to uh, receive those positive impacts that we're looking for. One example of how I worked with this uh, dynamic in my career was a couple of years ago, I was trying to address the purple shoe issue, trying to not be somebody who gives out purple shoes. And we decided in the organization that I was working in to launch a program called Getting Ahead in a Just Getting By World. It's a book that's written by Philip Duvall. And in that program, we invited participants to attend. We paid them for their time because we were asking people in our community who were living in poverty to be um, experts in poverty and to tell us you know, what they needed to get out of poverty. So we paid them for their time, we provided childcare, we offered uh, you know, a meal at every class, and we investigated together, leveled the playing field, right? So everybody who came to the program was an investigator, and together we worked to support their path to create a more sustainable future. It was a really successful program. We saw individuals launch new businesses. We saw individuals increase their credit scores by hundreds of points. We saw people become first-time homeowners. And it was really inspiring to see uh, everywhere that people could be creative and move themselves to a more sustainable future if they were just included in the process. That's an example of something in my career that is similar to what I'm gonna talk about with my guest today, Benita Robinson. She is the Gender Equity Manager for the City of Toledo. We met when she was working in Detroit and I absolutely loved working with her as a colleague. She has a wealth of knowledge on working with individuals who are survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence. She's a macro social worker. So like me, uh, she likes to think about systems and organizational health. And so it's just fun chatting with her. But she is going to be here today to talk about trauma-informed program design what it is, why it's helpful, and how you can use this approach when launching your programs or uh, when you're evaluating existing programs. So listen in, and at the end, I'll share even more uh, highlights about how you can apply this information to your work. everybody. Uh, I am here recording with my friend, Benita Robinson. Benita, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Um, hi, everyone. So again, my name is Benita Robinson. I um, have been doing nonprofit work in the area of sexual assault and gender-based violence for about 10 years. Um, and re- actually transitioning to a new role um, in the, the field of gender equity. And so I'm really excited about that. 
Um, I am a master's of social work by trade, uh, macro level social work. And so I am really uh, enthusiastic about working on uh, policy and sort of big, larger level change um, that would impact direct service work. So I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, we were thrilled that you said yes when Christine and I we're thinking about who we would like to ask to be on this yeah. first season. And I mentioned this in the you know virtual green room. Your name was one of those that yeah. came to the top of the list immediately just because we've enjoyed so much, you know, uh, being a colleague with you in the nonprofit yeah. sector. Um, and so we're thrilled that you said yes. When we were designing this first season, um, we wanted to think of topics that you know, highlight your expertise and mm-hmm. something that you've had experience with in your career and for all mm-hmm. of our guests, um, and then share that with other nonprofit leaders so that they can maybe learn and implement mm-hmm. those tools and strategies within their own organizations. And so we today are going to talk about a topic that I think honestly is a game changer for mm-hmm. how nonprofits approach their work with clients, and that's um, trauma-informed program design. Can you tell us a little bit about what is trauma-informed program design? Yes, absolutely. So um, this topic is super interesting to me because it sort of blends what is normally, so trauma-informed care, for example, is normally considered when we talk about direct service work and not, again, at macro level work, um, which program design is sort of a part of. And so um, trauma-informed, the the trauma-informed approach um, by itself is basically an approach that looks at the experiences of an individual or a a population as opposed to just focusing on symptomology. So a lot of times I think when we think about um, social issues that people have, we focus on the symptoms and remedying those and diagnoses and things like that. This really, this approach really creates a more holistic view of a person's and incorporates a person's experiences. So um, looking through the lens of what has this person gone through um, and how can we obviously address the root cause of that and any issues that may have um, risen out of out of that trauma that they experienced. So when you think about that in relation to program design, um, program design is obviously the p- process of uh, planning either a new program and sometimes even revamping an, an existing program. And there's a lot that goes into that, right? Really thinking about who do you want to target? Um, who's your audience or participants that you want to target? Uh, what activities need to go into that resources, right? Um, all of those things that go into thinking about what a program looks like, sustainability, capacity. So when you think about blending the two, um, from my perspective, trauma-informed care is really intentional in that when you're thinking about who the focus of the program is, it's really through a lens of, um, you know, the goal setting, for example, is through a lens of um, how do we ensure that we're not re-traumatizing individuals, but also addressing um, the trauma that they've experienced and uh, maybe the symptoms or reactions that they have in relation to that. Um, another important piece that I think we don't talk about is enough, enough because program design is usually client focused is 
Um, what does trauma look like from the perspective of those who will be a part of that program, right? Implementation or the people who are actually, um, you know, implementing the interventions or whatever the case is. And so that's a huge piece that I think is often missed that um, I think we also need to talk more about is what does it look like for staff as well? Yeah. I mean, so many things come to mind as you're Mm -hmm. talking. First off, when I first learned about trauma-informed care, it was like Mm -hmm. a light bulb went off. Suddenly I had language to describe something that I was seeing, you know, with my clients already and and Mm -hmm. had a new approach for how to see clients as a whole person. And as you mentioned, not just that label. Yes. Um, um, But also there are so many organizations who deal with really hard stuff, you know, staff are doing really hard work and Mm -hmm. that secondary trauma is, can be really hard on teams. Yeah. 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 That is true. I, you know, in the field that I've worked in for the last um, eight to 10 years, obviously um, I spoke a little bit about it earlier around um, working with survivors of sexual violence I think that one of the things that's been missed historically there is that, first of all, staff are coming to this work for a reason. And a lot of times it's because they are directly impacted by this issue. So for me, as a person who's been in leadership for years, um, gone through hiring processes where I've had to interview people, um, we often ask the question of like, what motivates you or why are you interested in this work? And a lot of people describe their own experiences in in my field, for example, with sexual violence or someone close to them that they love and care care about. And so we know off the bat that people are coming into this work with their own trauma experiences. Add to that that they are now interfacing with people at their at the sort of peak of their trauma experiences because often we're speaking to people and um, working with people right after they've been traumatized. Um, we're taking that on for them, and so um, I think you know the field of of talking about vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, and burnout is emerging more and more. Self care, we're talking about it more and more. But the problem that I, I'm seeing is that people aren't actually considering that when they're designing programs and building in that wellness piece for staff. And so, you know, even in the organization, for example, um, I was in, um, there were a lot of programs that were just already in place before I got there. And so I can't speak to some of those programs and how they were thought about, but also thinking about this wasn't a major conversation then either. And so, um, you know, we are often taking a look at our programs now and, and redesigning them to incorporate staff wellness as well, because um, that's just as important as that client facing work. Hey everybody, I need to pause because I know what you're thinking. You're listening to Benita and you're wondering, how do I connect with this woman? And luckily for you, Benita has also launched her own consulting business recently, Black Butterfly Consulting. It's a nonprofit consulting firm where she offers project management, program development, nonprofit leadership, and public speaking. If you're interested in learning more about Benita or potentially working with her, you can find her on LinkedIn, Benita Robinson, LLMSW, and I highly recommend connecting with her today. 
we talk about being triggered, right? And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of people say, oh, that triggered me or that triggered me. You know, yes. now it's, it's something that people talk about. But I mean, yeah. what you're describing is a situation where somebody comes to work for a reason. Mm-hmm. They're being re-triggered all the time, you know, yes. in that in that work that they're engaging in. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, people work in organizations all the time because they have a close relationship with the issue, be it, you know, foster care or, mm-hmm. you know, therapy. Like, yes. th- that's something that uh, I think happens in many organizations that serve many missions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that a lot of our listeners could probably relate with that. Yeah, yeah. So this podcast, we're, we want to highlight the wealth of knowledge that uh, everyday nonprofit leaders have. Mm-hmm. Because I, and I was saying in our first episode, I once did a Google search for consultant and it was this person in a business suit and it was, yes. you know, they were all buttoned up. And I was like, no, yes. <laughs> you know, I don't, I think that the, the word, uh, the the term expert can be expanded upon um, in really beautiful ways. And so, yes. and there's a lot that we can learn from each other. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me about a time that you um, successfully used a trauma-informed approach and, and how that made a difference? Yes. Yeah, so um, in my previous employment um, where I was working in a nonprofit that um, focused on sexual assault survivors. Um, I actually was was a part of and, and kind of led the charge of building up a new human trafficking program. And so um, we had been doing work with human trafficking survivors for a while, um, but it was just one person that was the person, right? And so um, obviously after receiving a huge amount of funding, we were able to expand and actually build a more formal program. So as we were thinking about what we wanted to do, um, one of the primary concerns that we had was first of all thinking about capacity because um, when you we already knew from the work that we had done previously that we were going to see a huge volume of clients coming to us for resources especially because we were offering resources that other organizations um, are not offering and so you know obviously when you're the only one um, that creates um, creates you know, more not- more uh, sort of attention to your program. So as we were thinking about the program design, I think what came up for us um, primarily was that working with trafficking survivors can be, in a lot of cases, a lot more cl- complex um, because survivors of trafficking have a pretty extensive trauma history, sometimes for years and years. Um, sometimes they're coming to you um, while they're still being trafficked. And so... Um, Oftentimes they are continuously in in crisis, not because of just the sexual violence, physical violence, emotional violence that they experience, but also because um, their basic needs usually aren't being met. Right. They've been totally dependent on other individuals. And so. Um, we thought about the primary thing that came up for us was the capacity piece and not overwhelming our staff with um with too many clients at once right because because of how complex these um these issues are with the people that we're working with so we did um talk a lot about what um you know what wellness would look like for staff what client loads would look like for staff and some of our other programming that really wasn't as much of a conversation because um 
we because it is short term programming. And so clients were kind of rotating in and out of our programming a little bit more quickly, whereas trafficking survivors, you know, we anticipate it would be sticking around sometimes for years. Um, and so we talked about that. We talked about sustainability, which is also um, huge when you're thinking about staff wellness. So, um, you know, as we think about sustainability, often we think about program sustain- sustainability, but also thinking about staff and their ability to do this work for um, long periods of time, right? And so what would it look like if we have a staff person who um, wants to transition into something different? Um, and what what could we do to co- sort of build that capacity to support that? And so, um One of the things we did, for example, is we created a coordinator role, which is more of like an administrative. So they would see a few of a very small client load, but be able to focus more on like the running of the program, sort of the day to day of the program, which um, shifted, I think, um, some of our thoughts around how we could also promote staff into leadership positions as well. Um, And so that was really important because, of course, you know, from my own experience and experiences of other people that work in this field, I know that sometimes people don't want to leave the field totally. Um, and so having those other avenues for people to still do the work in a different way um, is really important as well. So um, so that program has been running for about three years now. Um, I think we're we're always a part of program design is always going back and, and reevaluating what are we doing? How can we refine our policies and the way we do things? And so that also I'm really excited to say is still a part of the process, like constantly revisiting what we're doing and refining the process. So um, that's a, that's an example I would give of how to um, approach trauma-informed design. I do think, you know, just to add to that, that there also needs to be additional considerations around what resources are available for staff, um, you know, offering free um, counseling or therapy services, for example, what type of self-care activities do you do as a group and offer for individuals, right? If there's funding for that, for people to um, engage in those activities on their own, right? I think we it's really broad where you can think really creatively about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're touching on an issue that is so important to nonprofits right now, which is employee retention. Yeah. You know? And how do we keep people in place as a sector? Our retention rates are abysmal to begin with. And yes. Then, yes. And then, you know, in your situation, you're talking about, you know, adding this layer of really intense work. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and how that can affect people. So I love that approach where you are already at the beginning stages thinking about we yeah. know that this is going to be hard and how can we lessen the load for our mm-hmm. staff members? Yes. Um, I think one of the things about program design when I'm, you know, working with clients is <clears throat> I talk about how sometimes people say, you know, I don't do program design or yeah. I've never heard of program design. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. I mean, yeah. nonprofit leaders are designing programs all the time, mm-hmm. but the process of program design is to do it proactively, you yes, know, yes. instead of saying, oh, here's a shiny idea and here's some funding, let's smash them together. Yes, We're yes. thinking about, okay, wait, let's take a step back. Yeah. Let's think about what are all are we going to be requiring these staff to do? Mm-hmm. You know, how can we make sure that we're not creating this situation where there's incredibly high turnover from the start? Yeah. Um, and I love that. I, th- I think that that's yeah. a really great approach. Yeah. I think also recognizing that 
um, it's that that designing program shouldn't just fall on the leaders. And, you know, with that program, I mentioned, for example, every member of that team has a voice and has a say in what happens, even thinking about incorporating the voices of the people we're serving. And so um, making it so that it's not this top down, like, okay, here's what we're going to do and um, kind of laying it out for staff in the community, but really um, making it a collaborative process. And I think that's also important in, trauma-informed care as well, one of the sort of pillars of it is collaboration um, and sort of building that trust with the clients that you're working with. And so um, that process, is, it's definitely not a process of the leader just makes a decision. It's, it's we're going to have a conversation about it. We're going to get other people's opinions and thoughts and ideas and then make a decision from there. You know, you start a new program, that's a change for an organization. And anytime you have a change, if we're thinking about change management, if anybody just says, we're doing this, yes, <laughs> staff all of a sudden are thinking, why? You know, yes, you know yes. what's my role in it? And yes. so anytime we include staff members in that process, mm-hmm. it makes the transition easier. But in the same way with our clients, you know, if we were to tell clients, you know, we're doing this new program, we didn't include your mm-hmm. voice at all when we were designing it. Um, it might fall flat as well. Yes, yes, I, de- I definitely agree with that. Are you launching a new program and curious about program design? Or maybe you're evaluating an existing program and you're interested in a framework for increased sustainability and impacts? This week, we're offering a guide to program design the process, the framework, on our newsletter, The Nonprofit Spark. It's our weekly digest where we share tools, resources, grant opportunities, and more, and you can access it for free. To get your copy of this program design guide and other resources, head on over to www.sparkgroupconsulting.com today and sign up. Or you can shoot me a message on LinkedIn with the phrase program design, and I'll send you the link. You can find me and connect with me by searching Mary Gladstone Highland. So, Benita, how do you define expert? Um, For me, an expert, um, I view an expert as someone with experiential knowledge of a situation. So I do have issue with like us being hyper-focused on formal education as a gauge for expertise. Um, and formal education is really important. Obviously, I, I pursue a formal education for a reason. I feel like, you know, for a lot of us, it is important to be able to connect theory and practice. But for me, when I think of, when I imagine an expert, I think of people who have um, firsthand knowledge through their own experiences of, of a ish, an issue. So, um, for example, when we think about, again, using my example of the field of sexual violence, to me, the top experts are survivors of sexual violence. They know what they've experienced. They know what has helped them um, throughout their process around like coping strategies or how to deal with different systems. And so although we have people who maybe have never experienced that directly and but have training, um, you will never have that hands-on um, knowledge that's built from actually going through a situation and, and knowing how you survive that situation. And so 
for me, yeah, it, it's definitely someone with that experiential knowledge. I definitely want to say, like, obviously, if someone's been doing the work for years and years, I'm not discrediting that the fact that they have a lot of knowledge. But um, I think those folks still rise to the top for me. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I definitely agree with, mm-hmm. um, you know, how you're defining the word expert. And mm-hmm. for me, it's not to say that, you know, the typical definition of somebody who, you know, mm-hmm. is a scholar yes. you know, isn't an expert. Yes. It's just to say that we don't often see the expertise, mm-hmm. you know, in everyone. Yes. Um, yes. And so it's, I think it, I agree. I think it's important to honor mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. So for somebody who's listening and they've never heard of trauma-informed program design before, but they're really excited because they've mm-hmm. heard you make this awesome yes. case for why it's important. Yes. Um, what's one thing that they can do to start to implement trauma-informed approaches? If I had to name one thing, I would say to um, get the insight and voices from the stakeholders that are going to be involved from the staffing to the leadership that's going to be running the program to people in the community who may be serviced by the program or impacted by it. Um, To me, that's like one of the most important steps actually, because that should inform the way that you do the work that you're intending to do. Yep. And I think too often organizations, you know, they're, they're trying to, go about their business and keep their head Mm -hmm. down and meet all their objectives and their outcomes. And sometimes it's, you know, an added responsibility to then go out and have conversations with clients. And and so that part might get dropped off the priority list, but in actuality, it's incredibly important. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So do you have any questions for me, Benita? Yes. So, um, I I guess thinking about the topic that we're talking about and, um, you know, your expertise in in fundraising, and I know I've worked with you on on some program design stuff as well. Um, But like, how do you how do you see trauma informed care, for example, or trauma informed approaches, for example, um, being able to be applied to areas like fundraising and strategic planning and things like that? Just kind of thinking about our conversation today. Well, I think with fundraising, the the shift for me is about how do we talk about our clients? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that can make a big difference in yeah. how our donors respond to us as well. So, mm-hmm. for instance, we have to include our clients in the storytelling of our organization mm-hmm. to to truly honor, you know, their experience and what we're doing. When we tell stories about our clients, you know, Mm -hmm. and especially if we don't ask for permission or if we, you know, make their stories more dramatic or grandiose than they Mm -hmm. need to be, that could fall really flat for that client who then ends up reading our, you know, solicitation appeals or something like that. And so I think that uh, including that client voice authentically in our, Mm -hmm. in our communications, not only helps, um, me feel like I'm doing right by that client, Mm -hmm. But I think that that speaks volumes to the donor. I I see mm-hmm. um, a difference in organizations that focus on that client dignity when they're doing fundraising. And that makes me want to give mm-hmm. uh, to those organizations as well. And then when we're thinking about strategic planning, I mean, we cannot create goals for organizations without yeah. considering, you know, the viewpoints of the people that the work is going to serve. 
Yes, and so yes. just like program design, we have to run our ideas, our goals, our targets by the clientele that are, mm-hmm. you know, going to be impacted by it most. And so I love having, you know, clients on the strategic planning team, mm-hmm. or at very least, maybe you have a, um, a, a survey or a town hall or something where you're soliciting a, a focus group, where you're mm-hmm. soliciting client feedback, um, so yeah. that you can make sure that you're not setting five-year goals. <laughs> yes, yes. For something that y- your clients aren't going to appreciate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. That's the, yeah, no. that's the first step to a failed program, I think. Right. Or failed plans <laughs> in general, yes. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really great way to put that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Benita, this has been so uh, such a joy to get this yes. opportunity to speak with you. Uh, once again, I'm just so pleased that you said yes. yes. And I wish you all the best in you know, where you're headed in your career. And and I know that our listeners are going to appreciate learning from your Mm -hmm. expertise today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I am still laughing over that last comment of Benita's, the first step to a failed program or the first step to a failed plan. I'm having fun thinking about the clickbait opportunities there are for our title of this blog because of that. And I just, I'm reflecting on how fun that conversation was. I hope that you got a lot out of it or as much as I did for sure. Some of the lessons that I think are important to consider as we're moving forward throughout these next two weeks before our next episode are uh, immediately usable. For you as a listener, you can implement them today, which is the goal of this podcast is not only just to hear people talk, but it is also to give you these nuggets and the inspiration for what you can take back to your organization right now. A couple of things that I heard listening to this conversation were one, be proactive when designing programs. There's a lot of times that When we're thinking about, you know, initiatives that we want to launch in our organization or um, we have new funding and we're thinking about how we can utilize that funding in the community where we act reactively, where we say, okay, let's put some, you know, supplies together, some people together, let's pick a date and let's do it. But when we're designing programs proactively, when we're taking the time to think through, you know, who's that program going to serve? What are the needs of the community? What are the internal and external factors, the funding model, the evaluation metrics? All of that work beforehand goes in to make a really solid program. The second thing that I thought was really important is when you're doing that proactive program design process, Part of the trauma-informed program design lens is paying attention to that client voice, being laser-focused on it, because our clients know what they need. Our communities that we serve have all the information that we need already to solve the problems. So we have to start right at the source. You can do this in your organization today. When you're launching a program 
instead of just getting a committee together of staff and volunteers, you can include your clients in that process, in the decision-making table right from the very beginning. Or if you have an existing program, you can ask your clients' opinions on what would make the program even better. The last point that I think is really important is not only to consider your client voice. I think for those of us who are used to trauma-informed care, that is pretty natural. But Benita asks us to take one step further and to consider the impacts that your programming will have on your staff. So right at the very beginning of the design of your programs, thinking about who are the people that are going to run these programs? Might they be triggered by this work? And how can we help to support them because of that? What are some benefits that we can put in place to help our staff, you know, bring their best selves to this program? Benita talked about considering capacity and providing some extra support when there's capacity needs. Your program might have different needs for your staff. Your staff might need, you know, extra professional development, or your staff might need, um, you know, access to mental health services. There's a lot of areas where we can consider the impacts that the program will have on our staff right from the very beginning and do the best we can to set up our programs to support them well. So that's our show this week, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that it was helpful to you. As I mentioned at the top, if it was, share it with a friend. Tell somebody about this program and and help others learn from the awesome knowledge that already exists in our sector. Until next time, bye everybody. Bye everybody.